morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are today. This is Ali Amagasi welcoming you back to a regular episode of Cloud Unfiltered. I say regular because the past many, many episodes have been de dedicated to our KubeCon series, which was sadly, very sadly, free of one Pete Johnson. Pete, I'm so happy to have you back. It's nice to see you, man. Hey, it's good to hear your voice, too. Happy late New Year. Thank you. Happy late New Year to you, too. I hope it was fun and not too freezing up there in Michigan. Well, the trick to surviving December in Michigan is to spend a week in Florida. So <laughs> is that what you did? That is what I did. We did, uh, we did a Disney World trip. I went on Rise of the Resistance, which is the brand new Star Wars ride at uh, Disney World that has yet, as we're recording, to open in California. So it was a lot of fun. That sounds really, really cool. Well, I missed you a lot at KubeCon. It was a lot of work. It was hurting my brain to understand all the things people were saying about service mesh without you there to interject <laughs> interesting questions about it. That's all anybody wanted to talk about, which if you've listened to the last several episodes, you know that that is all that anyone wanted to talk about at KubeCon. So that was an interesting twist because that was not the subject uh, that was hot last year for sure. Anyway, getting to today's call. We're really excited. We haven't had a Cisco person on in so, so long. So today we've got a Cisco guest. His name is Don Dominic Torno. Dominic, tell me, am I pronouncing that right? Dominic Torno, yes. Dominic Torno. Welcome to the show, Dominic. Please introduce yourself and let me know, uh, what you, let the audience know what your title is. Hey, thank you very much for having me. I'm Dominic Torno. I'm a principal engineer at Cisco and I focus on anything cloud and cloud native. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. The reason we ha are having Dominic on here today is in a company full of people who can talk about networking at any hour and at any depth, Dominic is one of those rare folks within Cisco who can really um, speak intelligently to things like microservices and cloud native and serverless, which, as you all know, Pete loves to talk about. So we thought we'd have him on today to uh, discuss those topics and uh, define those topics. His specialty is, is kind of what is and what is not when you come to defining these things. Let's get started by talking a little bit about microservices. So first off, how would you define microservices? So microservices are, of course, not just a loose assortment of components. We still have an overall application and individual components work together towards a common goal. Now, that was true before we had microservices. Usually our applications were not just a big ball of mud our application were componentized. The difference with our traditional application and microservice application is that for one application instance, all of these components would run within a process. Whereas now, if we look at microservice uh, architectures, the components of an application instance uh, run in their own processes, now becoming a truly distributed application communicating over a network. Excellent. Now, I assume that most of our audience probably knows that, but I wanted to hear your official definition. What's interesting for me is when they first started, when people first started talking about microservices, it was part of, you know, it was all rainbows and unicorns and it was, everything's going to be fabulous now that we, we are operating this way and adopting microservices. And so what I'd be interested in is hearing kind of your opinion on, on kind of what people who are using and adopting microservices ought to be thinking about when it comes to design, development, operations. Is it all unicorns and rainbows or are there things they should be concerned about? 
Well, you definitely need to be uh, concerned about uh, certain issues. One is that microservices add a whole new class of error scenarios. So at first for a monolithic application running on one processor, we had a crash fault. The application may fail at any point in time. Now, when we added more CPUs, more processors to one machine, a monolithic application would take advantage of uh, multi-threading. Multi-threading added non-determinism. Is um, action A gonna perform before action B or is action B gonna perform, uh, perform before action A? Now with distributed applications, and microservices are inherently distributed, with distributed applications, we add partial failure where we had crash fault that would bring down an entire application. Now we have partial failure that brings down parts of the application. And to make matters worse, from the service consumer, it is very hard to discern, did my request get lost? Did my service provider crash? Or did my response get lost? Right, right. Pete, what does this bring up for you? Well, the, the other aspect of that, I mean, that's that's kind of all the technical behind it. But I, I think another benefit there is that microservices tend to lend themselves better to agile methodologies because with, with monolithic applications, you kind of had to deploy everything at once. And because there was a very hard connection between all the components, as Dominic was just describing. But in microservices, because there's a looser coupling, you tend to be able to release the, the microservices independent of one another because they use these REST APIs typically as the contracts in between them. And, and because of that, you get more iterations on your code, which gives you more chances to find innovative solutions and therefore whether, you know, whatever your business goals are, whether it's better revenue or or better expense management or whatever that case might be. So, so I, I think it's always important to, there's plenty of technical benefits, but there's also business benefits as well. And I suspect Dominic, what you're gonna mention next is, okay, that's all the benefits, but it comes at a cost as well. That is correct. Now you adequately described the advantages of uh, microservices in application development and operations. Right. However, uh, you have to contrast that again with uh, Monolith, where the Monolith being developed and deployed and operated as a single unity, oftentimes you even had a compiler that was able to go from top to bottom and already point out flaws in your application. Now, uh, you do not have this uh, convenience anymore. And uh, the operations, the coordination and operation of your application becomes uh, much harder and uh, also needs to, uh, needs to become much more sophisticated. So while you're correct, it has uh, tremendous benefits for the agile development. All of these benefits come with a cost and they require a significant bump in the maturity level of any team adopting microservices. Well, and... And for that reason, like I find myself, and this isn't a popular opinion, but I'm kind of old and gruff enough that I guess I don't care. I'm, I'm anti-unit test for that reason, right? Like I don't, I don't need a nice report that tells me that, you know, 90% of my functions within my microservices pass some tests with some arbitrary fake data, right? What is way more interesting to me than unit testing is integration testing. 
So instead of being like test-driven development, I want demo-driven development. I, I want to be able to see how these things go end-to-end and interact with one another. Do you think that we've seen, as we've, as we've gone towards microservices, have we seen some complacency when it's, I'm just responsible for my little unit of it and we don't have enough focus on the bigger picture? That is definitely a danger you may run into is uh, deferred responsibility where uh, team A defers responsibility to team B and team B defers responsibility to team A as they are both now acting as an independent unit. So also that is uh, definitely an organizational challenge uh, that you need to overcome and you need to uh, share the responsibilities even so by the very definition individual microservices are responsible for individual parts of the system. So then the other part of this, right, is microservices has become synonymous with Kubernetes, right? And, and there's certainly some operational challenges with Kubernetes. Ali mentioned how popular service mesh was at KubeCon and things like that. So have, have we gone to, has, has Kubernetes become too complex in our quest for finding a way to create and host microservices? I guess is my question to you. That is a very tough question and would probably warrant a recording just for that. But uh, we can at least try to touch on a few of these, uh, few of these concerns. Now, when we talk about microservice applications or applications in general, we can discern between at least three different roles. One role is the one of the application developer. Another role is the one of the application operator. And the third is the role of the platform operator. Now, if your target platform is Kubernetes, Kubernetes does pose uh, significant, uh, significant challenges and, of course, a steep learning curve for the application operators and the platform operators at least. It is also not entirely transparent to the application developer, whereas from the point of view of the application developer, it has the least consequences, whether an application runs on Kubernetes or some other container orchestration platform. Um, Whether Kubernetes uh, became too complicated is now a matter of perspective. You will hear a lot of the community members of Kubernetes say that Kubernetes is a platform to build a platform. Now, oftentimes you ask yourself, well, what are they actually talking about? So uh, they are talking about Kubernetes extensions. And uh, from that point of view, Kubernetes itself is a base layer. It provides you with powerful primitives, but uh, these primitives are not necessarily meant to be consumed directly. You're putting extensions on Kubernetes that help you manage the lifecycle of your applications. A very prominent one is, for example, Knative that uh, manages the lifecycle of serverless microservice-based applications, or Kubeflow that manages the life circle of uh, machine learning applications. Now, with these extensions, you raise the level of abstraction, and by raising the level of abstraction for this specific area, you then decrease the complexity. So it very much depends on the point of view, and you could argue, yes, uh, if you wanted to host a microservice application, on Kubernetes directly that may be too complex, or you can say no, given the right Kubernetes extensions and abstractions, it is a very good fit. 
So you bring up Knative, and, and admittedly, I haven't taken a hard look at that probably in about nine months. And it, it certainly, it, it seeks to sort of lower that learning curve and put in an abstraction so that you don't have to know the level of detail as you would with, with native Kubernetes. I, I guess my question is someone who spent more time with it than I have is, does it go, does it go far enough? Keeping in mind that sort of the mindshare competitive competitor there is function full function as a service runtimes, whether that's Google Functions or AWS Lambda or Azure Functions. Keeping in mind that we haven't really seen a, a, a other than you could argue OpenWhisk, we haven't really seen a fully functional on-prem function as a service platform. So does Knative go far enough? It certainly, at least the last time I looked at it, didn't go as far as those those FAS platforms I just mentioned. I agree. And uh, I would argue the vote uh, is still out on that. We are definitely not on par with functions as a service like AWS, Lambda, Azure Functions, or uh, Google Functions. However, Knative actually does uh, provide a few base abstractions that are definitely worth uh, taking a look at. One is, for example, Kubernetes uh, serving that manages the lifecycle of an individual event-driven uh, microservice from gradual rollout and traffic split management all the way to um, scale up and down to uh, zero. So truly serverless where no resources are uh, held by the application if the application is currently not active. So it's definitely worth studying it, but the votes are still out if if it's going to see broad adoption. In the, in the past, I remember you did an analysis, didn't you, where you compared things like Knative to Lambda, kind of, and you, you created like a scale of what it was like, what was the least abstracted and most abstracted and easiest to use, right? Am I yeah. So Knative came out while I was in the middle of that analysis. So oh, it, did. It, okay. it, it, it would be an interesting exercise to go back and, and do that again. So so for Dominic's sake and for sake of the audience that didn't hear that prior episode. So what I did was I got a group of friends together and we, we built an, a version of the Kubernetes guest book, which is kind of the hello world application that you learn when you're first learning Kubernetes basics. And we built it based on different function as a service platforms. So we built it on Lambda. We built it you know, with Dynamo DB. Then we built it on uh, OpenWhisk with uh, Minio as the object store and Mongo as the database. And, and then with other, you know, the other Kubernetes-based function as a service runtimes um, like FN and, and you know, we did it with like four or five of them. And like I said, Knative came out when we were in the middle of that analysis. So it probably didn't get as fair a shake as it could have. But but we tried to take, here's, here's a simple, but not a, you know, it's fairly trivial application, but still has some create and list operations to it, some, some actual database operations to it. And what's the developer experience like on these different platforms and which one is more like native Kubernetes development and which one is more like a, you know, a more Lambda-like experience. And we made some comparisons among those. And, and that was, I mean, that was kind of the root of the question about where we think Knative is. At least at the time, Knative appeared to be kind of in the middle of those two, um, where it, it was certainly easier than native Kubernetes, but not quite as easy as a, a more native AWS Lambda. And it, it sounds like 
at least at the time, Knative was kind of trying to figure out what it wanted to be. So, you know, in the last year, how, how much how 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 much of that has the Knative community figured out? Do you think, Dominic? Well, one thing I want to uh, caution is that we definitely need to separate developing for Knative and uh, operating Knative. That again is the difference uh, between the application developer and the platform operator. So when we develop for AWS Lambda, Azure Functions, Google Functions, we usually do not get that mixed up because Amazon, Microsoft, or Google manages the entire experience for us. We only touch on the development. However, when we run Knative, we are sometimes in the situation where we develop our application and run Knative in parallel. So there are two types of uh, activities that we have to look at. Now, if we separate the operating, uh, strictly separate operating Knative from the set of activities that we are looking here, I agree that the developer experience for AWS, Azure, GCP is more streamlined. However, we also have to keep in mind that Lambda and Friends are true function-as-a-service um, platforms, whereas Knative aims to be more the serverless container platform. So my question, Pete, kind of the reason I was bringing up to you that, that ranking you had done before, the comparison was, who's this for then? Who is, is, is Knative, is it really a personal choice, the person using it, or is there a certain type of company that something like Knative is going to be better for? Well, I'm interested to hear what Dominic thinks about that. But I, I mean, some of it comes down to, do you want to run this on-prem or not? If you are if you're are hardcore about running this on-prem for some security or data gravity reason, then you kind of don't have a full function as a, as a service choice in the marketplace right now. Mm. If you're open to running that stuff in a public cloud, then typically the reasons why you would not choose serverless would be if you've got some microservice that's particularly stateful because you, you have to pay for the state management um, every time that function fires up. If your processing required some kind of specific hardened operating system, because you, you tend to not have that choice in the public cloud on the, the serverless platforms, or if you've got a specific CPU type that you want to run, and maybe you've got some GPU processors, none of the public clouds you know, tell you anything about that CPU or that OS, but but if and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna change the question slightly for for Dominic is I guess do, do you see a day where where it's serverless first that for you know most workloads don't have those three specific things I just mentioned the the statefulness the OS specific and the CPU so if you don't have some other data gravity reason for running that on prem. Are we going to reach a point where it's serverless first? And if there's some reason I can't run serverless for one of those reasons we just enumerated, then I consider running that on-prem, or then I consider running that in, in Knative, whether that's on the public cloud or on-prem. Yes, I do believe we are headed into a serverless first uh, world. Let me uh, come back to uh, Knative and the applicability to uh, Knative for one second. And there is a strict, uh, as you alluded to, there is a, there is a strict KO criteria. 
So Knative itself is only suitable for stateless event-driven microservices. So if your application needs to manage state or does not react to uh, events, then uh, Knative is by definition out of the question. Now, that does not mean that we cannot take Knative or other frameworks and uh, evolve their capabilities. Then the question is still, are we headed to a serverless world? And I would argue, yes, we are. If we look a little deeper at what is actually serverless, if we do a five-minute Google search, we will find a lot of answers around pay for what you use. Well, that was the promise of the cloud all along, pay for what you use. That does not seem to be a defining criteria for serverless. If you examine serverless a little more, then um, you will see that serverless is an activation pattern. Your application does not reserve or acquire resources before the activation of your application is actually necessary. So my application can already receive a request before it has any resources acquired, the re resources will be acquired on demand, the request will be processed, and after that, the resources will be released without my interjection. Now, that is a form of uh, late binding that enables us to make smart decisions along the road. So, for example, in the future, is it necessary for me to bring up my resources always in the public cloud? Maybe not. I may be able to service a request much better on the edge, or because of data gravity reasons, I may be able to serve a request much better in my data center. Now, given the serverless nature where I bring up my resources when the requests come in, I can make that op uh, that decision at the latest point in time possible and therefore find an optimized response for that specific request. It's like what we've seen with just-in-time manufacturing, only now it's just-in-time like CPU and memory resources, where because you can now get them in milliseconds, where 20 years ago, if you screwed up a unit of compute, it took you months to get a new one. It, you had a very different attitude towards risk assessment when it came to cha making changes of the software on top of that compute platform. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I agree that we're kind of headed in this serverless first, but I, I especially like, uh, Dominic, what you said about the edge, because when you start to talk about launching resources in milliseconds, what then becomes the limiting factor is the network latency. And because the speed of light is fixed, the only way to ultimately reduce that latency is to reduce the distance between the compute and whoever the user is that needs that compute. So are, are you, what, what are you seeing in some of that edge compute kind of world that might be of interest? When it comes to the dynamic compute and uh, acquiring resources, either on the edge, in the public cloud, or in your local data center, we are at the very beginning of this uh, journey. We see uh, some advancement uh, around content distribution network uh, providers. We have some great examples around uh, Fastly, for example, that open up their infrastructure to functions as a service. However, in that case, uh, they do not have the ability to move further to the cloud or into your data center. So 
we still have a lot of work to do to figure that out, but that seems to be where the industry is headed. Now, as Cisco, we are also uniquely positioned to actually make a push into that direction because we have a lot of hardware in the in the edge on the cloud and in the in the data centers that is absolutely capable of taking up some of the workload for these applications and therefore make an optimized decision. If you actually want to process that request on the edge, on the cloud, or on your data center. That makes sense. So Pete, what you were saying earlier, it sounds like the the way things are now, well, what serverless enables isn't really just agility, but it sounded like it, it kind of enables freedom because there's a little bit less of um, a punishment for making a mistake, right? If there's some, if, if, if what you're doing winds up not going well you've, and you've acquired these resources, you're not going to have to wait one, months again to get the resources, right? Right. It's because compute and memory in, certainly in a public cloud serverless world with those function as a service runtimes, yeah. you're getting allocated those resources within milliseconds. So, so yeah, that's and because of that, you're you're forced to create those microservices in a very stateless way, which makes them less coupled from the other microservices that might be used in tandem with that one to create an application, and and in that way, you you get um, with that less coupling comes the ability to do releases even faster. You can do more releases per unit of time with the same development headcount than you could certainly with monolithics or, or even with container-based microservices. Would, would either of you hazard a guess as to what percentage of developers are using a serverless approach at this point? Um, I would say it's at least less than 20. It's, 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 not, it's, it's certainly nowhere near a majority at this point. Yeah, Sorry, I feel I like it's really new just because um, I still feel like you know, as long as Kubernetes has been around, I still feel like people are ramping up on that, let alone like ready to jump to serverless. But at some point, I think it's going to be like those regions that have just that just skip entire generations of technology to, to the newest thing because it's it's easier. And there's going to be people who just go straight to serverless. Sure. It's third world countries skipping landlines and going straight to cell towers. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be interesting to watch kind of that that progress. Oh, you guys, we're running out of time. Pete, do you have any other questions before we wrap up? Or Dominic, anything you want to squeeze in before we leave? I'm good. I am happy. Thank you very much for having me. Sure. It's been a pleasure chatting you up. We like to, to hear kind of what's going on, you know, in this world from somebody who works at Cisco, what your point of view is like. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing it.